Well, good morning. As you can see on the two banners to my sides, we as a church family are currently in a study of the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go ahead and open it up with me. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2 this morning. And if you didn't bring a Bible, feel free to use one of the Bibles that are provided in the pew in front of you. Look for chapter 2, which are the, the larger numbers. If this is your first Sunday here at First SF, I just want to say it really is a great time for you to be with us because this book, the book of Genesis, is the starting point for understanding all of the rest of the Bible. Even more than that, I believe it's the starting point for, for understanding this world in which we live. I can say that because the book of Genesis is a book about beginnings. It's a book about origins. It answers some of the most crucial questions that that we could ask. Where are we from? What is our purpose? I think we can look at our world and say, why is it such a mess? Why is there death? Is there any hope? The book of Genesis begins to to answer all of these questions, but as I've reminded you of the last couple weeks, it's very important that you understand that at the heart of Genesis, its goal is not to tell us anything about you and me. The heart of Genesis, the purpose of Genesis is to reveal to each one of us the character and the nature and the attributes of this God who created us. More than anything else that we need to know, we need to know him. And only when we have a right understanding of him can we understand ourselves and the world around us. So in chapter 1, we already learned a lot about God. We learned he is eternal. We learned he is powerful, that he speaks things into existence. We learned that he is purposeful, that he is sovereign, and yet he is personal in the way that he interacts with his creation. We've learned a lot of things. As we move into chapter 2 and on, we're going to learn more about who God is. But today, I want us to focus on one truth that we see about God in chapter 2 of this text today. And that is this. God is a, the God of Scripture, the one true God, is a giving God. He is a gift giver. The New Testament in the book of James says it this way. It says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now what James is saying there is that that God's nature does not change. He doesn't go from good and generous in one moment to capricious and evil the other. No, it says that God is always good which means the gifts that he gives his creation are always good. He even says they're perfect, that they perfectly meet our needs. Now, I realize we just came out of a season of a lot of gift giving. The season of Christmas is all about giving gifts, and we, we do those things. I wonder in this room, how many of you got a really great gift this Christmas? Just raise your hand. Got a really good gift? Okay, how many of you got a not-so-good gift this Christmas? How many of you lied just now just because you don't want to get in trouble, right? I mean, all of us, we get good gifts and we get bad gifts. Why? Because we as humans, no matter how hard we try, are not perfect gift givers. We do our best, but some gifts are good, some are not. For as an example, uh, today is my wife Rachel's birthday, January 20th. Now, the, yeah, you can give her a high. That's great. Clap, clap for her. She deserves it. So, The thing about a pastor's wife, it's not fun having a birthday on a Sunday, especially a Sunday with a members meeting and community group and all these other things. I'm like, hey, we got all these things already. All throughout the years, I will say this. um, My gift giving to Rachel has in many ways been subpar. I've told you many times before, I think, that at one birthday, I decided it'd be a great idea to give her a vacuum. That's not a good idea to give a gift 
of a vacuum to your wife on her birthday. I'm a subpar gift giver, but I don't think I'm alone. Doesn't matter how much we try, our gifts oftentimes are not always good, nor are they anywhere near perfect. But that's not the case with our God. When you look at the God of Scripture, His gifts, it says, are always good, and His gifts perfectly meet some of our deepest needs. In, our, in this text, Genesis chapter 2, we see three tremendously good gifts that God has given his creation, that God has given each one of you in this room. And so I want us to look at these three things together. The very first thing, if you're taking notes, is this. God has given us the gift of Sabbath. Now, as a reminder, back in chapter 1, we looked at God's creation of the heavens and the earth. We looked at the six days of, of creation all culminating when God says, let us create man in our image. In the image of God, he created the man and woman. So God created all things in the earth. He, he brought formation and he filled the world. and He did all these amazing things. At the very end, it says this, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day, which moves us into our text today, Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now what you quickly notice about day seven is that it is entirely different than the first six days of creation. On the first six days of creation, we saw God at work, right? He was forming and filling the world. He was creating order out of what he had created. But on this day seven, what does it say? It says, and God rested. Now, that doesn't mean that God was tired. God's not like us. At the end of a work week, we're achy, and all we want to do is lay on a couch. God is not like that. Uh, the book of Isaiah says this about God. It says, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint, nor does he grow weary. The text never says God was tired. What does it say? It says that he rested. The point is that God stopped. He ceased his work. And then it says that he went on to bless that seventh day and, and make it holy, which is a word that means to set it apart. He sets the Sabbath apart from the other six days of creation. Uh, the picture here is really amazing. God both models and designs this rhythm of life that you and I are meant to experience. We know that he's designed it for us because he later prescribes it to his people. Exodus chapter 20, he says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is with you in your gates. For in the six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You see, for most of history, this rhythm has been the rhythm of Christians. The Christian life has been guided by this same rhythm. For six days the, the sun comes up. And as the sun comes up, you eat breakfast and you do what? You go to work. The sun goes down, there's no more light, so what do you do? You go home, you eat dinner, you spend some time with family, you go to bed and you get up and do the next thing, the same day, same thing the next day. 
Six days, that's what happens. But then one day a week, what happens? The work stops. Instead of going to work, you go and you join other believers and you worship and you refuel your soul. You spend time with friends and family simply enjoying the day, putting the work aside. That is the rhythm of the Christian life for most of history. But then electricity came. And while we were all thankful for electricity, electricity brought a lot of change. Because now, we're always on. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, the lights, when the sun goes down, we have lights that go on. We have computers and phones and we have text and Instagram responses and all these things that don't take account of the day of the week. 24 hours a day, 7 days of on, we're on and many of us have lost this sense of rhythm that God both modeled and designed for us to live out. But here at the very beginning of history, God gives us this rhythm. Six days work, one day Sabbath. Now I think that first part's important. Six days a week, what does God say? Work. Laziness is not an option, a biblical option for the Christian. Uh, there was re- interesting, I read a tweet from another pastor here in the city, and he, he actually sent it out this last week. I thought it was fitting for our text. But he said this, he said, we have a generation of 30-year-olds talking about the intricacies of Sabbathing when they haven't learned to work the other six days. Now, that's very much a general statement, but there's some truth to that, right? We have to work. For six days, God has created us to work. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartedly as for the Lord and not for men. I think some people, when you think about work, you see it and you think, well, that has to be a product of the curse. It has to be a product of sin. Surely God doesn't want us to have to work, but that's not what the Bible says. Before Adam ever sinned, Before the curse came and our broken world happened, what do we read in verse 15? Look at it, chapter 2, verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. You see, one of the primary purposes of Adam's life was to use the abilities that God had given him to cultivate and develop the, the creation around him for God's glory and for the good of the rest of the world. Do you realize that that's your design too? It doesn't matter what you do. Some of you may be in medicine. Some of you are primarily in technology. You're in finance. You're in the the service sector. You're you're a stay-at-home parent. You work a blue-collar job. You work a a white-collar job. It does not matter. Your design is to use the giftings God has given you for God's glory and for the good of others. To use your life, your job, in the service of other people. But the problem for many of us is that's not what our work is about. Our work isn't about God. Our work isn't about others. It's about us. We've gone to work to to find our identity. We go to work for wealth. We go to work for security. We go to work work for for reputation, for acclaim. We go to to work for success. And all of a sudden it becomes our identity. And, And friend, when that is our identity, it's impossible to stop. If my identity is wrapped up in my work, then I can't take a day off. It's dependent on me. I have to keep working. I have to keep working. I have to keep earning. I have to keep delivering. The gospel has many implications, but one of them is that because of Jesus' work on the cross, because of his resurrection, we as Christians do not need to find our identity in our work. Because of Jesus' love for us, what he did for us on the cross, we have forgiveness in Jesus. In Jesus, I am forgiven. In Jesus, I am secure. 
In Jesus, I find my joy. In Jesus, I find my contentment. In Jesus, I find my security. Therefore, I can look at work with the right perspective. Yes, I'm going to work hard, but work is not my life. It's not my identity. Therefore, I can say, God, I trust you with that day. I can stop. I can cease from my work and refuel, allow God to refuel both my body and my soul. That is what Sabbath is all about. I think one problem that we come to when we talk about Sabbath is that throughout history, one of the issues that comes up is legalism. This happens with every good gift that God's given us, right? You look at every good gift that God's in, we can take it and we can become legalistic about it, and that's what some have done. You go to some parts of the world today, and they literally will not even turn on a a light switch because that's work. I can't do that on the Sabbath. There's other people that say, well, Sabbath has to be from this hour to this hour. It has to look like this. We become legalistic about it, but friends, that's never what Sabbath was meant to be. Jesus himself says this. If you look at Mark 2, verse 23, his disciples are going into the field. It says this, one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees, in other words, the the religious leaders, were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? I want you to listen to Jesus' response. He said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Here's what Jesus is getting at. He says the Sabbath is not meant to be this tyrant over us that we feel like we have to live up to to earn God's favor. The Sabbath is for man. The Sabbath isn't something that we have to be legalistic about. The Sabbath is a gift to be received. The gift of stopping from our work of saying, you know what, I'm not going to work on school today. I'm not going to work on my job. I'm not going to work on that project. I'm not going to to look at Instagram. I'm not going to read my emails. I'm not going to answer that text. This day it stops. Because my identity is not in any of those things. My identity is in Christ. He's given me this gift so that I can rejuvenate, so I can go into this next week with a full heart and a full body. That's what Sabbaths are all about. It's why Sabbath, all, all of our Sabbaths in this room, they don't have to look the same. My Sabbath is not on Sundays. You guys work me way too hard on Sundays. It's okay. But I'm exhausted on Sundays. That's not a good day of Sabbath for me, so I try to do Fridays. Now, I will say this. This is one of those sermons where uh, I will admit I do not live up to this. If you ask my wife, does Ryan take off every Friday, she will tell you, no, he does not. There's many Fridays he works. As I was reading this, God convicted me because I have also looked, even in my own work, in ministry. That can become my identity, and I live into that. But my goal on Fridays is to to restore my soul. The way that I do that personally is I spend a little bit of extra time with God in the morning. I go work out. I hang out with Rachel. It's our only day to get some one-on-one time, so we try to spend time together. When my kids get home, I hang out with them. On a great Friday, I take a nap. Amen? You may say, Ryan, that sounds horrible. That's not life-giving to me. That's fine. You pick your own, what you're going to do on your own Sabbath. But here's the main thing. Do something that fills your cup. As you do so, make sure that sometime in that day includes a specific time set apart for the Lord. Because here's the thing. It is absolutely impossible for us to go into our weeks with Sabbath-rested bodies, but to still not have Sabbath-rested hearts. I think sometimes what we like to call rest is actually escape. It's not Sabbath. We're not resting. We're escaping through playing lots of golf or we're escaping through binge-watching Netflix. 
We're escaping through shopping. We're escaping through doing all of these other things, more activities. Friend, it is absolutely vital that you set time aside for God to restore your soul. And that happens as you connect to him. I know many of you are exhausted. I talk to you. Many of you are weary. Uh, You're expected to perform and deliver, and so you fill your body with caffeine and coffee and five-hour energy drinks, and by the time you get to a Sunday, you are utterly exhausted. I cannot encourage you enough. Would you receive this gift that God has given for your health, spiritually, physically, the gift of Sabbath? That's gift number one. Uh, These next two won't take as long, but they're no less important. The second gift we see in this text is the gift of God's commands. Let me explain. By the time you get down to verse 16, God had created the Garden of Eden. He had put Adam in it to work it. And it's in this moment that we see God speak his first words to his creation. It's his first thing that he says to Adam. I want you to hear what he says, verse 16. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The first words that God speaks to Adam are that of a command. Now, I think this is really amazing. It struck me this week as I looked at this. One of the greatest gifts that God has ever given humanity is his voice. It's his word. It's his commands. As creator, he could have been a a distant God who just kind of let creation fall apart. He could have let us do whatever we thought was best, let us do um, what's not by our design. But instead, because God loves his creation, he speaks to his creation. He says, as your creator, I know how you are designed. I know your purpose. I know how you will flourish. What makes you flourish? What doesn't make you flourish? Therefore, he gives to us his commands. I wonder, when, I, when you hear that word command, what happens in your heart? When you hear the word command, all of a sudden, do you get joyful? Does your heart leap with praise? Or does your heart get a little defensive? Does it begin to, to buck up against command? In our broken world, I think that many of us look at God's commands as anything but a gift. We, we run from God's commands. We ignore God's commands. We fight against God's commands because we want to be the authority of our lives. We think that we are worthy to run our own lives, doing whatever we think is best. But the Bible says differently. The Bible says, no, no, you don't understand. God's commands are one of the greatest gifts he could have ever given you. God gives Adam his commands because he loves him. He wants Adam's existence to be one of joy. He wants it to be one of peace. He does not want Adam to experience the pain and suffering and destruction of evil and death. God's command here was a gift. I wonder, how do you see God's commands? You go to the Psalms and you read David, King David. He speaks about the commands as if they're the greatest thing in the world. I want to read just a few of them. Psalm 119, verse 47 He says, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 48, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. 
Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. Verse 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. How many of you love God's commandments like that? How many of you cherish God's commandments like that? King David experienced the pain that came from disobedience. And so he realized these commands that God had given, they're not restrictive. They're not boundaries that I need to fight against. I need to crave them. I need to long for them. I need to read them, and I need to obey them. When I do so, I find my joy. As you think about this text, I want to ask you this morning, where are you looking at God's commands as a restriction more than a gift? Where has God said, hey, do this, and you've looked at that command in your life, and you said, no, I'm I'm good, God. God, I think I've got this on my own. I'm not going to obey your command. Maybe you're looking at his command today, and you think, well, maybe I'll, I'll do that later in my life. I'll obey it at some point, just not right now. It's disobedience. Where are you looking at one of God's commands where he says, do not do this, and you're doing it anyway? You're saying, God, I've got this. I promise. I'm going to be fine. May we all learn from this verse command where he speaks directly to Adam. Do not eat of this one tree. I've given you all of these things as far as your eyes can see. Listen to this command. May we all learn that obedience always brings blessing. Disobedience always brings destruction. Every time. I can look back at my life, and that is true. Disobedience brings destruction. Obedience brings blessing. It may be today, it may be later, but you can rest assured it is coming. I pray that we be a church who loves God's commands. For some of you this morning, the first step may simply be reading the Bible for the first time on your own. Maybe you've never done that, you've never read through the Bible. Let me encourage you, there are tons of Bible reading plans. YouVersion Bible app has great reading plans. We as a church family would love to help you with that. I encourage you, read God's Word, read His commands. But I'm afraid there are many of us in this room that we know God's commands. We have read God's word. We're just not good at applying it. We don't listen to his commands. We don't obey because we don't see them as gifts. I pray that we would see them as the gifts that they are. Last but not least, we see in this text a third gift, and that is the gift of relationships. Verse 18 contains some of the most unexpected words in all of the creation account. It says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Up until this point, everything God made was called what? Good. He creates the birds. They're good. The fish. They're good. The sun and the moon and the stars. They're good. But all of a sudden, Adam is there in the Garden of Eden, and what does he say? It is not good. Now, this does not mean that, that there was a design flaw with Adam. Although, for those of you who are wives of husbands, you may see, yes, there are plenty of design flaws. But it's not a design flaw. What is not good in this passage? It is not good that he is alone. Now, that takes us back to what we talked about last week. We said this, that humanity is made in the image of a triune God. When God said, let us make man in our image, those plural words are talking about the Trinity. Our one God, eternally existent, Father, Son, Spirit. Adam was made by a community, which means this, that he was designed for community. 
He was designed, his design made in the image of a Trinitarian God was one of needing community, needing close relationship with others. I want you to think about how countercultural that is. The Garden of Eden had everything that Adam could have ever desired, what we would consider paradise. That was the Garden of Eden. He had all the best food. Yelp ratings were off the chart. He had everything he needed. He had the best job. He had physical health. He had a relationship with God. This was paradise. And yet God says what? It's not good. Man, woman, was designed for relationships. So in verse 21, God gives Adam the wonderful gift of relationship. He creates Eve, someone who is different than Adam, who had different kinds of strengths, and yet they go from not good to all of a sudden being very good. Verse 21 says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Later, we get a glimpse of of the the contents of this relationship in verse 25 where it says that they were both naked and unashamed. What that reveals is a relationship of unity and transparency, a relationship where they were both fully known but also fully loved. How many of you crave relationships where you are fully known, all your warts, everything, and yet you are fully loved? It was an incredible gift. Now, for those of you who are single, I want to be clear this morning. This passage is not saying that you lack something if you are unmarried. Uh, Jesus was single. Paul, one of the greatest influences in history, was single. The New Testament clearly states that it is better for some to remain single and live passionately for, for Jesus. So while this passage does contain a picture of the first marriage, the greater, more broad point is this, that we are not designed to live our lives without close relationships that God has provided around us. We need one another. Far too often, I think people see relationships as a means to an end. We look at relationships and say, how can I get something from this relationship? What in this relationship, what doors can it open? What can they affirm in me? What can they do for me? Other times, we look at relationships and say, well, it's not worth the time needed to put into it. They're too messy. They take too long to form. I don't have time for that. San Francisco is infamous, by the, by the way, for this. San Francisco looks at you and says, hey, you want to be successful? You want to have a claim? You want to have a great reputation? You want to be financially secure? You don't have time for re- deep relationships. And all of a sudden, we neglect our family. We neglect our friends. We neglect the church that God has put around us. But the Bible over and over again says the exact opposite. You are designed for relationship. You will never be what God designed you to be without these close, intimate relationships with other people who are different than you. One verse in particular, Hebrews 3, verse 13, says this, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We desperately need one another. What you really need this morning is the gift of a group of believers who will encourage you, who will confront you, who will bear your burdens, who will listen to you, who you can be transparent with. That is what you need. But unfortunately, that's not what we want. Most of us in this room are perfectly happy just coming and being part of a big group. 
We're perfectly happy coming into this room and listening to a sermon and singing and then just kind of doing our Jesus thing in solitude the rest of the week. Friend, I'm here to tell you, you will not grow in Christ. You will not grow in the likeness of a Trinitarian God if you try to live out this faith on your own. You need one another. God, from the very beginning, has designed you and he's given you this incredible gift to pull you and grow you called relationships. The first step here at First SF toward greater relationships is what we call our community groups. I just want to encourage you, if you've been attending First SF for a long time, you've not stepped into membership, you've not gone through any processes, you're just kind of hanging in here, let me just tell you, you need to get involved in a community group. Get involved in one of our service teams. Get to know other believers. Allow them to get to know you. We need relationships.